Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we are speaking with Michael Ballone. Michael believes that leaders have the courage to be early adopters and to clear the path for those they lead. He believes that you don't have to be flawless as a leader, but you must be reflective and make changes when necessary. Good leaders must show compassion for those they lead. Rooted in ancient Japanese samurais, the reason why people still revere the sages of three ancient kingdoms is because of the vastness and extent of their compassion. He believes that broadness of mind is a trait all leaders must possess. Consideration of multiple viewpoints to weigh the needs and wants of all members of the group is essential. Michael believes never micromanage. You hire well and hold your followers accountable. When and if they do not perform, you address the shortcomings and forge forward. Micromanaging leaders find themselves void of loyalty and respect of those they lead. Lastly, always have a vision and communicate that vision. Our founding fathers did so by differentiating America from other nations. Differentiate your organization from others, and you will succeed. Welcome, Michael Ballone. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Well, we're so happy to have you on our podcast. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Absolutely. All right. So, Michael, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Sure. I'll go a little out of order here. What I'm doing now is I am the director of curriculum in a K through eight public school in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And we have about 5,000 students in a community of about 50,000 or so. And my path to leadership, at least in the educational realm, is somewhat atypical. I actually began my working career on Wall Street in New York City, following my undergraduate work. And while it was a great job, it was certainly paying the bills. As I advanced and, and got a little older, it wasn't really doing it for me in terms of, you know, making wealthy people wealthier was not really fulfilling for me. Mm -hmm. And knowing that I loved school, you know, as I reflected back on it, I loved being in school, I loved learning, I was continuing to learn. Staying in that industry really meant going and pursuing an MBA. That wasn't really a burning passion of mine, although it would have been a logical route if I were to stay in that industry. So coming from a family of educators, I really reflected on where I wanted the next chapter of my life to go. And I enrolled in a master's program that would also afford me the opportunity to obtain a standard teaching certificate. And loving English, even as a little child growing up, I, my mom would always tell me that I was always correcting people and um, <laughs> sometimes to their dismay. But that was something that really stuck with me and I understood it. Mm -hmm. So I, I started my quest to become a teacher. And in doing so, I also received a master's degree, as I said, and then finished the program while I was actually still working on Wall Street right up until I student taught. So then I got my student teaching assignment, actually in the district I currently work in Marlboro Township in New Jersey. Started that assignment in September, finished in December. I remember it well, because 13 is my lucky number. So I finished on December 13th, and that following Monday landed my first English teaching position. So I taught English to seventh graders and loved every minute of it. Then I decided to go back for my postmaster's certificate in ed leadership. Still taught for a little while after that. Quite honestly, I saw my path as getting a job as a vice principal 
and then becoming a principal and retiring as a principal because I knew I loved kids. I loved being in a school building. I wanted that connection. That was my path. So I applied for a few vice principal positions in the district I'm currently in, got through the interview process and did not actually get the job. One thing that the assistant superintendent at the time did, which I thought was very nice and compassionate, he reached out to me and said, if you want to talk about that experience, I'd be happy to sit down and speak with you. So we did. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, he actually said something to me. This was a moment that really hit hard with me. He actually knew me better than I knew myself. He said to me, I don't see you as a building administrator. I see you more as a district level administrator. And at the time, I didn't believe him because I said, no, I know who I am. I know what I want. I want to be in a building. I want to be around kids. And, you know, district level administration means that I work in this building where you work and just doesn't seem like that much fun. But I really reflected on that comment and tried to figure out what he was talking about. And then it actually started making sense. And he said to me, you know, I think you'll get more satisfaction about being a district level administrator and affecting an entire district than just the building. And he said, you know, not to take anything away from vice principals or principals, but I don't see that fit for you. So I thought about it and one thing led to another and a district level administration position actually came available in this district. It was the supervisor of English language arts, the gifted programs, and social studies. And I thought that had my name written all over it, at least from the English side, because the English was really the bulk of that work. So I put my hat in the ring and went through a pretty rigorous process, got to the final round. It was me and an external candidate, and I got the job. What a journey. Yeah, it's not over. That took me another two years. And the director of curriculum, whom I reported into, one day she said to me, I can't do this anymore. She loved the work that she did, but she said, look, I'm ready to retire. So you might want to think about putting your hat in the ring for my job. So I applied. And at that point, we had just received a brand new superintendent. And at that point, I'm thinking, well, now I really need to prove myself here because he doesn't know me. All of the old regime was starting to leave. So it almost seemed like I was starting over, but I said, you know what, I'm going to go for it. If I don't get it, that's fine. You know, we'll just continue on. I still love my job as an ELA supervisor, but ultimately obtained the position. So that brings us to present day as the director of curriculum and instruction for Marlboro Township Public Schools. Well, Michael, it was quite a journey. I wrote a couple of things down, but I'm curious. Now, as someone who started in Wall Street versus someone who started their career in education, are there some differences in leadership? Well, there certainly are distinct differences. Being in the private sector has somewhat taken the blinders off or at least allowed me to see the periphery when entering education. What I mean by that is, when you're in education, you seem to have more rights that you can fight for. For example, when I was a teacher or even now as an administrator, you have a contract and you can point to specific places in that contract where if there's a violation, there's a process that you can sort of take that violation to Mm -hmm. and not necessarily be forced to do things that are outside of that contract. Now, that, I believe, created some friction when I entered the public sector. Because when you're in the private sector, you don't have a contract per se. There's just this overall expectation from your leadership that you're going to do your job. And if it takes you 15 hours a day to do your job, that's what it takes. If it takes you five hours a day to do your job, that's what it takes, which it normally doesn't. And you are expected to run at full throttle in the private sector every day of every hour that you're there. And if you don't want to do that, there will be someone behind you waiting to take your position. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you don't do that and you don't perform, you feel that constant pressure. Now, I think teachers are probably one of the hardest working individuals on the planet, right. knowing that I've been in both. 
but they do have a guideline by which to live. And if that guideline is obstructed or not followed, there are steps that they can take to sort of ameliorate the situation or at least allow them some humanity to say, look, you can't expect me to go home and work all weekend and day and night on a given task. So from that perspective, they do have an opportunity to at least fight back and be a human being, if that makes sense. It sure does. And you're right. Uh, Teachers are the hardest working leaders to me in the school building. I appreciate you giving us that perspective. Now, there were a couple of other things that you talked about. It was interesting to me that you looked at the leadership levels and you kind of capped yourself at principalship. And not that that's a cap that really is an amazing position, but you had that cap for yourself. And the superintendent who spoke into your life saw something different. I love that because it was after an interview, right, that he approached you? Yes, after a failed attempt interview, yes. That doesn't happen often, Michael. No, it doesn't. They typically move on and typically there's not that personal touch. And quite honestly, I think he did it because I was an internal candidate. If I had gone for that interview mm-hmm. and I were not an internal candidate, I don't believe I would have been afforded that conversation. The fact that he saw something in you. And he took the time to give you some input and direction, which initially you didn't agree with, but you also decided to reflect on it, which is really important. So thank you so much for sharing that. Now, how would you describe your leadership style? Leadership styles need to vary if you're going to be a successful leader. You know, situational, right? So there are times where the decision needs to be mine and it's transactional. We need to have, let's say, a district assessment schedule you know, at this time because we're bound by marking periods or you know, whatever the constraints might be. That's a my decision and I'll make it because I have to make it. Mm-hmm. There are other times where the decision does not need to be mine at all and it becomes transformational leadership. So empower those around you, whether it be a teacher, a supervisor, or even support staff. Look, that decision does not need to be mine. Just keep me informed, but I want you to run with it. And believe it or not, when you provide transformational leadership at the appropriate times, my experience has been people appreciate that and they work harder for you. Mm -hmm. The third type would be collaborative, where the decision is ours. It's not yours, it's not mine, but it's ours together. We may bounce ideas off of each other, and I may say, well, here's one non-negotiable for me, and the other side says, well, here's one non-negotiable for me. All right, let's put them together. Let's make that decision together. So those, I would say, would be situational and three different types, and effective leaders weave those in and out of their daily practice. You mentioned transformational leadership. And you attached empowerment with that, which certainly can transform an organization. But can you drill down a little bit on what transformational leadership looks like? Because a lot of people use that word. We use it a lot in ed leadership courses as well. But can you elaborate a little bit more about what that means to you? You know, with transformational leadership, you still need to set a frame. And if I can provide an example We have done a lot of work here with respect to using data to drive instruction. And I know that seems like such a cliche and a buzzword. And every district you talk to, anyone in a school district would say, yes, we use data to drive instruction. But when you actually drill down to that concept and you ask people what it looks like in their district, what does it look like? How does it feel? If I were to touch it, what would I see? Mm -hmm. they can't give you a clear answer on that. You know, everyone uses data, but how does it drive instruction? Right, and how does it transform? Right, so what we've done here is we've provided the frame. Here are some non-negotiables that I need done. I don't need to come into your school building, or I don't need to come into your classroom and put my thumb on every step of the way of how you're going to work within the confines of my frame. I'm going to give you my broad frame. For example, you're going to administer a district common assessment. 
And after that district common assessment, I want you to look at the data from the assessment. And I want you to create a list of standards for each student where they excelled and where they need some more work. I want you to go into small group and remediate that. I'm not gonna tell you what the remediation looks like, but I want you to do it. You may decide to use an online program that we have. You may decide to pull some resources that you love, your go-to place for grade level standards, let's say in math, you can use that. I'm not gonna put my thumb on that. That's the transformational piece. That's the piece where I am going to literally set you free and all I want you to do is hit my five non-negotiables. I won't tell you how to do it. I won't tell you necessarily when to do it, except I want you to do it timely because we know timely information and timely feedback to students is essential, but you decide when, how, and be able to at least report back to me, or if I walk in your room and I see a small group, be able to at least tell me why those five kids are sitting together. But I won't tell you, you know, how to do it every step of the way. That's right, no micromanaging. Right, exactly. And so there's a freedom to create. But um, I still think those who you lead need the frame. They always need sort of that border. And what I find is nine times out of 10, they exceed your frame. They go outside the box and they go above the line. But if you don't set the benchmark or the line, they can't go under that. And there can be confusion and frustration if you don't do that as well. Correct. Yeah. Now, Michael, which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? This is a good one. So Mm -hmm. although his book is about 10 years old or so at this point, Simon Sinek, he wrote, Start With Why. One quote in there just really stands out for me. The quote is, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And what he really means by that is, you can have a great product or you can have the next best initiative in your school district. But if you don't communicate a passion and you don't communicate what he calls your why, and you're just selling a thing or you're promoting an initiative, people aren't going to buy it. They're not going to follow you. They'll comply. They will say, okay, if you want to move in the direction of personalized learning, we will do that and we will follow you, but we won't buy it. We won't be passionate about it unless you communicate why you're passionate about it. Hmm. His parallel to that is how Apple communicates to its customers. They communicate with their why first. And their why is that everything we do, we do to challenge the status quo. They don't come out and say they make great computers. They don't come out and say, hey, we have the greatest iPod now, or look at our new iPhone. They didn't start that way. They start by saying, everything we do, we do to challenge the status quo. This is how we do it. And then, you know, he moves on to say, and by the way, we make great computers and we have great phones and we have great MP3 players. So They flip the model, and every great leader needs to flip the model by communicating your passion or your why behind anything, any initiative or product you're rolling out, and that's how you get buy-in. Now, you're pretty consistent because from the beginning, you talked about a burning passion. Yeah. And following that, what does that mean? And so here you speak about passion as well, and how important Is it that leaders really know their passion and move forward with it? That's essential. If you don't know your passion, it becomes very apparent, much like a teacher who doesn't know his or her content. Students know that. And you can only fake it for so long. At some point, it will come out. You know, I don't know anyone who takes a trip without a GPS, right, and knows where they're going. It would be analogous to that, to getting in the car for a long road trip without a map or without a GPS, Mm -hmm. who carries maps anymore, but (laughs) you need to know what your why is, what your passion is. And it doesn't mean that people need to agree with your why or your passion, but you need to have one. And you always will have followers. You always will have naysayers and you always will have some in the middle who say, "Ah, just tell me what to do. I don't care. But you need to communicate what your why is. And in doing that, you need to do a little self-reflection. Right. I've read this book and I love it. But I also know that as leaders, before we know our why, we need to know who we are. And oftentimes, Michael, if you ask someone, well, tell me, who are you? Like those two questions, who are you and why do you do what you do? Yes. It stumps people. 
It does. Um, and it stumps leaders, and that's scary. It is, because that essentially tells you that they're traveling a road that they're not quite sure where they're headed. Right. Now, what type of leader are you inspired by and why? I think of my current superintendent, who has, I would say, really shaped my leadership and his ability to inspire us or me. I'll, I'll speak for myself, but I know he inspires others in the organization. He knows when to roll up his sleeves, step in, and at least have the knowledge of what is happening at the boots on the ground level. I think too often leaders believe that the boots on the ground knowledge is beneath them or they don't have time to learn that knowledge because they just have so many other things that they're doing. And what that essentially does is I think it ruins credibility because you need to be able to walk the walk and talk the talk, even though you don't have to do it every day. That really inspires me to be that person. So it sounds like your superintendent values others, serves others, mm -hmm. has integrity, has wisdom. Yeah, and I would say integrity is probably one of his most important tenets. I've been in conversations with him where he has actually said to people, look, we're going to have a respectful conversation, and if we can't, we'll have to end this. I understand you're upset, but we need to move past that, and let me listen to what you're saying. And, and nine times out of ten, it de-escalates the situation, and we move on. That's key, listening as mm -hmm. well. So thank you for sharing that. Sure. Now, Michael, what's the best advice you've ever received? I'm going to tie this into advice that comes from Mother Teresa and her poem called Anyway. This resonates with me. It should resonate with leaders in many different industries. If you don't mind, I'll read her poem anyway. And really, this is advice, direct advice that I think any leader could take. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of being selfish or having ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, people may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it was never between you and them anyway. That always moves me. Michael, thank you. And it's absolutely great advice. Sure. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. Master Leadership at Schools podcast program will help prepare your students for any future they encounter. Teachers and students learn effective leadership and podcasting skills to create a platform that's an incubator for leadership, innovation, collaboration, and creativity. See this in action at masterleadership.org forward slash MLS and find out how to bring this to your organization. That's masterleadership.org forward slash MLS. Now, what does it mean to you to have a good team and how do you build and sustain one? Having a good team is essential. Those who understand that the sum of the parts of that whole team are a greater value than any individual member is one of the first main ingredients. Mm -hmm. And then that comes with hiring well. It's probably the most important thing an organization can do is to hire well. Good teams don't require to be told you know, what time to come to work and what time to leave. There's this intrinsic motivation to do well and good teams push each other. They provide space for constructive criticism and intellectual conflict, all in the name of getting better. This is not about pointing out somebody's faults or saying that's a terrible idea. It's really about pushing each other to say, well, could we look at it a different way? Or I don't really love the way 
you did this, maybe you could do it this way. And having that space and sort of non-judgment zone to have that ability to just share a frank conversation and your frank thoughts with somebody. If you can create that, that would be my idea of a good team. And I believe I am a part of one of those great teams. We do all of those things. I know that it requires trust in the team. How do you build that? Building trust really allows people to fail. Failing forward is something we talk about all the time. And if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough or you're not working hard enough, but not punishing someone for failing to try something new. And I think that is what really allows people to take some risks because if we're not taking risks, we become complacent. Almost stagnant and we don't grow. Absolutely. Thank you. Now, Michael, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it's shaped your life? I have a personal one. Well, it, it somewhat ties into my role as I moved from teaching into my leadership role, but it's really a personal experience, if you don't mind that. Of course. 2012, I was trying to obtain my first leadership position. And as I mentioned before, I had applied for the supervisor position of English language arts. And in that time, my wife and I were expecting our second child. So we had a two-year-old. And on May 4th, 2012, we welcomed our second child into the world. And life was good. We had two boys. They were two years apart and both born in May. It was almost like clockwork. And I was in the final stages of working my way through to my first leadership position in educational administration. So remember, May 4th, my youngest was born. May 17th was my final interview in front of the Board of Education, vying for this position against an external candidate. So about a week after May 4th, we take our newborn to the pediatrician do a wellness check, and she heard something just odd. She said, his heart just sounds different. You know, it's nothing to be alarmed, but I just, I'm going to make an appointment with a local cardiologist. And we said, okay, somewhat concerned, but being the second child, you're kind of over a lot of those first. So we go to the cardiologist a few days later, and the doctor comes in, and they examine our little guy, and they're speechless. They're not saying anything to us. We're saying what's going on to them, and they won't really share anything. Doctor leaves the room, gets his partner to come in and take a look and says, do you see what I'm seeing? And the other doctor says, oh my gosh, well, that's not what we want to hear. They both leave, they come back, and they say, we see an abnormality in his heart. And while we don't really know what it is, it's not something we've seen before. That doesn't mean it's life-threatening, but it's just not something we've seen before. We have reserved a bed at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, and you need to leave right now. And we looked at each other and said, what do you mean right now? We don't have any clothes. Our other son is with a friend. What do you mean? No, you need to leave right now. Make a right out of this driveway and drive west. So we did that. And my wife lived in that hospital for about 12 days. And on May 17th, which was my interview here, was surgery day for my son for open heart surgery. So surgery was early in the morning. If all went well, I was to be in Marlboro, New Jersey at 7 p.m. in front of the Board of Education for my first leadership position. All did go well. I purposely didn't share with anyone in the district what was going on because, you know, part of me said, I don't want them to feel sorry for me. I want to earn this on my own merits. So I didn't. I didn't tell anyone. And someone found out that night of and said, are you crazy? Why didn't you tell us? But I drove home from Philadelphia to get up here for seven, did the interview. And it had to be one of the most comfortable interviews of my life. It was in front of nine board members, my 2B boss, the superintendent. It was what would have otherwise been a very stressful event. I just said, those aren't the important things in life. That helped shape me in thinking about really what are the important things in life. And your son? He's a healthy six-year-old, first grader who hates homework. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you had me at the edge of my seat. I am moved 
by all that you went through and your family went through. And I wrote down what you said. You said you felt the most comfortable in a situation that could have been very stressful. Can you describe why at that point in your life where things were upside down, I can't imagine all the emotions that you were feeling. Yeah, it put me at ease knowing that regardless of what happened here, there's so many other more important things in life that really matter. If this didn't work out, then it wasn't meant to be. And I think people hear that when they don't get a job. Oh, it wasn't meant to be, but it still doesn't make you feel better. Right. But that experience really opened my eyes to it really doesn't matter. And it may have actually helped me look poised and confident and just be myself. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Sure. Now, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? I would say in my role as director of curriculum, there are probably two that stand out for me. And one of them revolves around when the Common Core Standards were adopted by New Jersey, which technically was in 2010, but their full rollout was really by 2012. There was a lot of debate. Maybe there still is a lot of debate, but it seems to have quieted down without becoming political or debate the merits of the standards. I knew at that point that it was a different game and students had to be exposed to every standard on a given grade level and demonstrate knowledge in those standards. And if we use math standards as an example, students were taking state assessments, they were taking teacher-made assessments, and we even had district common assessments back then by grade level. But we weren't doing anything with the data. And again, as I mentioned before, it's just like all other districts. Yep, we are using data. And as I had mentioned, you know, when I stepped into this role, we had a brand new superintendent and the two of us sat down and we said, okay, so we have all of these district assessments that are happening. We have state assessments. We have teacher assessments. What is the organization as a whole? We call it the cruise ship. We've got to steer this cruise ship in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And what are we doing with this information? And quite frankly, we were being questioned by some of our parents. How is this helping my child? What is it doing? And some teachers hadn't bought into it either. And they said, look, these assessments are coming down from the district, the state. It seems redundant. And we have our own tests. So why are we doing this? To come back to the why, we actually created a committee. We crafted a vision statement and created goal statements on how we would meet that vision. We also created flowcharts for teachers so they knew visually what it looked like and action plans to map out exactly each step of the way when we would do something and what that deadline would be. That then turned us into creating data teams at both the district level and the school level so the data could be efficiently analyzed and actioned because that was the piece that was missing. Everybody collects data. Everyone says, yep, I can tell you that last year we had X percent of students not knowing this standard. Well, that was last year. What are you doing about it in the moment? I'll give you one example that really speaks to this process. The process continues and we continue to improve it. But one thing that really jumped out to us, one example in grade five math, where once we had our data teams in place and we really started looking at that data, we noticed that as a district, and this was a very big moment for us to say, wow, this one hit us hard. District-wide, most of our fifth graders did not understand that 0.6 had the same value as 0.60. And otherwise, if we didn't have this process in place, if we weren't looking at data and we weren't looking at standards and we didn't have very good assessments to sort of pull out this information, we wouldn't have known that. After further digging, we said, well, I wonder why students think that 0 0.60 has a higher value than 0.6. And it's that zero at the end because any other time before that, when working with a whole number, they were taught that when placing a zero on the end of a number, it increases that number by a power of 10. Decimals were never discussed. Maybe that was in fourth grade, and maybe that's not what they were learning at that point, but they were transferring their knowledge and doing what we want them to do. They were taking knowledge that they were given, and they were applying it in a new setting, except that new setting has different rules when you're dealing with decimals. And again, this is only one example. We have many examples like this, but this was one spot where 
that now informed my curriculum. We actually made a change to our curriculum documents. We actually have units of study in math to kind of help teachers navigate a very voluminous curriculum guide. Without having that process in place, we would simply be teaching and hoping that students learned. Whereas now we have a real systems process to drill down by standard and by question type and remediate it in the moment. That's one big success story. The other one really relates to our staff. When I first took my current seat as director, professional development days were one of my responsibilities, and it remains one of my responsibilities to plan and really carry out that day for the staff. You know, I remember being a teacher and attending district professional development days that were just not inspiring. They were, check the box, it's in my contract, right? I'd have to go to it. And I always found professional development days that I had attended outside the district so much more meaningful for me. Mm -hmm. And I tried to determine why. And the reason for that is because it catered to what I needed. If I was going outside the district, it was something I chose to be at, and it was germane to my subject. So I put myself on the quest to do just that, but internally, and not necessarily say, okay, teachers, you will go to this professional development session, and you will sit and listen and be talked at. The next hour, you're going to go here, and the next hour, you will go here, and by the end of the day... We will give you a certificate for five hours of professional development. And that's kind of what it was. So I wanted to turn that on its side. And I did some research. There's a lot out there now on what professional development can look like and how you can make it better. And really the concept of ed camps came up. The true ed camp concept is really no agenda. Let teachers just find a room and have a conversation. I knew that was not necessarily feasible, at least to start. So I kind of did a modified ed camp. So we house our professional development day in the larger middle school. In advance of that, I reach out to our staff members and ask them if they would like to present to their peers. The majority of the presentations that are offered are from internal people, and they are paid a stipend to present to their colleagues. So from their perspective, they're attending the professional development day, they're teaching something that they really want to share, which is what they do for a living, and they love it. Right. And they're also getting paid for it. It's a win-win for them. It's a win-win for the attendees because they get to choose where they want to go. And the other spin that I put on it this year, which I think really was the icing on the cake for them, was I kind of weaved in the concept of mindfulness and taking care of oneself. So I contacted a local wellness center, which consists of a nutritionist, a chiropractor, massage therapists, and that group came to our pro day in October. They provided some food for our staff. They provided massages. Brilliant. Um, yeah. They provided workshops on wellness and nutrition and taking care of oneself. Too often, I think teachers are thrown things and just do this and do this. And they feel like they get piled on without really thinking about themselves. Mm-hmm. And I even led a session that day and I called it open mic, meaning you can come to me with anything that you want. I will stand here and you can throw tomatoes if you want and I'll respectfully try to catch them and diffuse them. But what's your curriculum experience like? I want feedback from you. And the way I led that conversation off was a phenomenal day, by the way. Not too many tomatoes thrown. I imagine. But the way I led off, I said to my group, oftentimes you hear that we do everything for the children in our school district. If it's not student-centered, we don't do it. Even on interviews, administrators will say, every decision I make is with the student in mind first. Mm -hmm. And I actually told the staff, I don't subscribe to that. The reason I don't subscribe to that is because much like when you're on a plane and Mm -hmm. the flight attendants say to you, Should the cabin pressure change in the plane, put the oxygen mask on you first and then assist your child. 
I subscribed to that same philosophy in our school district. And I said to them, if I don't put you first, the staff, you will then not put students first. And that will in turn make our board unhappy, make administration unhappy. So if we start with you, the staff first, to make sure you're okay, you're well, and you're taken care of, inherently that will then force you to put your students first because you have the ability to do that now. Right. And therefore our board will be happy. Our community will be happy and everything will work like a well-oiled machine. But Mm -hmm. if you don't put yourself first and you say, you know, I put students first, in my opinion, you're wrong. You know, that quote that you said, people don't buy what you do, but why you do it. Yes. I see it as the foundation of your work. I really appreciate you sharing that. Now, Mike, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now? Yeah, again, lifelong learning, I think, is something you hear a lot. It is essential and can only really occur in your work if you're passionate in what you're doing. You will know your passion and work are aligned when the lifelong learning just doesn't feel like work. You know, you have that intrinsic motivation to read literature, to listen to podcasts, to attend events, and any knowledge that you can gain, hopefully related to your work, that's where lifelong learning comes into play. And if you think about anyone who's passionate about anything, you could look at someone who loves photography. My older son loves Disney. He knows everything about Disney World, Disneyland, Walt Disney. Is it because someone is over his shoulder saying, you need to learn about Walt Disney? No, he's passionate about it. His goal is to work for Disney one day at eight years old. That's what he thinks. You know, so passion breeds lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. And if you can marry that with the work you're doing, then you've won. You've hit the employment lottery. And that's how I really felt when I moved from my Wall Street job, which, you know, it certainly paid the bills and it was a great job. And there were great people there, but it was not my passion. Right. And so, you know, it's also something that you do intentionally. It's not a crapshoot like, oh, well, my passion and my motivation and my learning doesn't jive. It's something that you set out to do. Absolutely. All right. So what is it that you're learning now? Right now I'm learning about design thinking and launching a design. And the book that we're reading right now is called Launch. And it kind of ties in Google's 20% time or passion projects, if you want to call it, or genius hour, and how to really shape school districts to allow students the time and space to take on these types of activities in the classroom while still meeting the academic standards. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm reading right now. And another book that I finished was The Storyteller's Secret by Carmine Gallo. And it's funny you had mentioned, you said, I appreciate your stories that you're telling. That's what it was about. It was about leaders and how they can lead by telling stories because people can relate to stories. They can really kind of get emotionally attached to what you're telling them. And if you can attach a story to that, then you have them hook, line, and sinker. All right. Thank you for that. Now, if there were something you could change in education, what would that be? Well, changing education takes more time than it should. And that's the real differentiator between the private and public sector. So if I could change something right now with the blink of an eye, I would take state assessments off the table. Not because I don't think they're good assessments or that the standards aren't good, because I do believe in the standards, but standardizing assessment for an entire state does not allow educators to really dive into their district. The New Jersey Department of Education is actually in the process of gaining feedback under their new leadership, which I'm very happy about. The new commissioner was actually a superintendent in our county. And along with our governor, it seems that they are very willing to listen to feedback from all of us. So we have staff members, administrators, and teachers who have been chosen to do work on not only revamping state standards, but also state assessment. I'm hoping to get the commissioner's ear or even the governor's ear through our teachers and administrators who are doing this work at the state level to maybe grab their ear, knowing full well that we have federal 
regulations we need to operate under in order to get the appropriate funding. I understand that piece through the Every Student Succeeds Act and the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. But I believe we can still comply with those parameters by allowing districts local control on assessing standards. But what that means is you need a real process to put in place from the local district level to make sure that that happens. And it can't just be teacher assessments and hope that teachers have standards aligned assessments. What we have here in Marlboro Township is a host of district level assessments that are completely aligned, that are only given to students after the students have learned, because that's how it shows up in our pacing guide. And we actually have actionable steps that take place immediately following those assessments to remediate, to enrich. So that's something I would really love to see happen. And in their audit process of seeing that school districts are doing what they need to do, that could be one item to say, okay, let me see your process Mm -hmm. of assessing standards at the local level and what you're doing after that. Uh, Because that's really what we're in the business of doing. You know, the fact that our students now sit for a state assessment without the level of detail in the data that we really want is somewhat meaningless to us. Right. That's a real change that I would love to see happen. Perfect. Now you have a lot of responsibility. So what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? It's a great question. So we have admin retreats every summer right before school starts. Mm -hmm. And this summer, our team as a whole took a trip into New York City and we visited a place called Mindful. It's M-I-N-D-F-L. And it was, I would say a little uncomfortable at first because most of us, we are doing 8,000 things and you don't typically take time to just sit, reflect, or even meditate. Mm -hmm. But we attended and as an admin team, we went through probably a 45-minute exercise in meditation. The instructor was great. She said, look, everyone's on different levels. Just try to follow me. I'll prompt you. You can close your eyes. You don't have to close your eyes. You can sit down. You can stand. You can just do what you need to do in order to be in this space. But give me your 45 minutes and just follow my prompts. And let's see if we can at least leave here by sort of setting intentions and, you know, sort of hitting the reset button. It was hard for me. I think it was difficult for a lot of us. But it got me thinking. Before that, I didn't really start my day hitting the reset button. Right. So that's what I do. I try to do some stretching. I try having a little alone time, even though it's tough with two kids and a wife in the house Mm -hmm. uh, in the morning and everyone's getting ready for school. I try to hit that reset button at some point in my morning. So I am prepared even for the unknown, right? But it at least allows me to sort of come back to center. That's what happens for me in the mornings. And then actually in the evening, I sort of bookend it. This one certainly will not work for everybody, but it works for me. After work, I come home and I try to be a good dad. But it's important to me that I have dinner with the family and I spend some time with the family after dinner, getting ready for bed and baths and all of that good stuff. But once that comes to a close, that's when I go to the gym. And I do something for myself because I want to maintain my health. That sort of helps me reset for the next day. And it's because I'm doing something for myself. It certainly works for me and it helps me balance the family and work. This begs the question, do you get enough sleep? I probably don't. I would say no. And I know that. That's something I need to work on. Okay. I appreciate you sharing that. It's certainly a great motivation and a great plan to reset. But I know just by speaking with so many leaders and speaking to people who have burned out because they don't get enough sleep, that I do have to just say, get some sleep, which is important because that's where we do repair and reset when we sleep. For a long time, for me, that wasn't important. And I paid the price for that. So Michael, if you were to go back in time, What advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I'll relate this to how I think about my parents. Mm -hmm. So as a child, you always thought your parents knew everything and every decision they made was the right one. They couldn't make mistakes. They always had the right answers. 
you hit a spot in life where you say to yourself, wow, I am an adult now and my parents didn't always have the right answer Mm -hmm. or I don't always agree with what they were saying, but they seem to have the right answer and you just took that for what it was worth. So I relate that to leadership. I too thought those who led me as like the omniscient narrator, right? They knew everything. Mm -hmm. They had all of the right answers. And knowing now what I know and sitting in this position, not having all the right answers in the moment is okay. And what I find is you just need to know where to find those right answers or might not be the right answer, but you need to know where to go to at least forge your path. And maybe it's consulting something as simple as what does our policy say, right? And every school district has a series of policies. So if there's something related to a procedure, what is in writing that we say we do? Let's go there first. And then if it's not something that's policy driven, maybe you need to tap the knowledge of others who have history in the organization or colleagues who hold a similar position in other districts. It's okay not to have all of the answers. And more importantly, letting those you lead knowing you don't have all of the answers, yes. together you can forge that path. And I think they appreciate that. They sure do. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Now, Michael, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? There is one quick thing I think leaders need to hear something about this topic. And, and the topic is really obstacles. So as a leader, you will inevitably have obstacles to hurdle. And some of those are easier to navigate than others. And in my opinion, the inanimate obstacles are much easier to handle and conquer as opposed to living obstacles like people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people are obstacles. They want to be difficult or they don't want to listen to you or they just disagree with your direction or your vision. That's the most difficult. But my advice is just keep driving straight. And if you continue to drive straight, At some point, you can put the olive branch out and you can explain your why and you can explain your side, but you need to be okay with them just continuing to be there as an obstacle. Mm. But don't shy away from your core values and your beliefs. And if you know you're doing the right thing to the best of your ability, you have to almost either drive around them or move them out of the way. Because Your train has left the station and you're forging your path and they may not want to jump on, but at some point you need to allow them the ability to jump on. But if they don't, you need to continue and move. Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Have an amazing day. You too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.